Hello everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Colony Drop, a podcast that celebrates the entire meta-genre that is Mobile Suit Gundam. My name is Brian, my co-pilot is Isaac, and today we will conclude our review of Season 2 of Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. We'll pick up right where we left off, discussing the characters of Gallarhorn. And a warning for today's episode, we do discuss McGillis Fareed's backstory, which is not for the faint of heart and definitely not G-rated. So just keep that in mind. Hope you all enjoy. Uh, okay, so on to Gallarhorn. Gallarhorn. So what do you think of McGillis this season? For a villain of the series, he had a lot of layers to him. I liked how complex his plot was, but he's no Garen. He has his complex reasons for fighting and trying to take over Gallarhorn, but I felt like it was a, very much a tragic villain, not an anti-villain, a, a very much a failure of a villain at the end. In a way, you could say he was almost not the main villain because uh, Rustal really ends up taking that from him. He wasn't a protagonist. It was fun watching the journey with McGillis, even though it was very clear how bad it got way before the end and that he would not be successful. I think as great as his plan was in season one and as good of a manipulator he was in season one, he was the opposite in season two. I thought his plan turned out to just be terrible. His plan boiled down to, like I said earlier, getting bail and then just assuming that everyone would ally with him because he because he has bail. And I, I know he was expecting support from Mars Gallarhorn and, and you know the other Seven Stars people, but he didn't really have any contingency plans and he, he kind of just kept going. At some point, he probably should have bowed out and had some foresight to say, this probably isn't going to work. Because he already saw Kujan, who's you know, allied with Rustal, using the Don's Leafs. He should have assumed that they would have been prepared to use Dan's Leafs on him as well. And like the whole time, he portrayed this aura of, of confidence about yeah. this plan will work as long as I have you, Tekadin, with me. And you know he's dragging Orga and everyone with him. And I, I, I always had this sense of like, well, he's going to have some sort of trump card up his sleeve. Like maybe he has a supply of mobile armor somewhere that we don't know about oh, and he's going to yeah. unleash them. But he didn't. Like, his cards were on the table for a lot of season two, and he didn't really have anything else to play. Like, you know, his deck was empty, and he was just kind of playing with, with everything on the table, and that was Bale. You know, he, he kind of went out as a failure, like you said. You know, he, he lost a duel with Galio for the most part. I mean, it was sort of even, but they, they both lost their suits, and he ended up getting sort of wounded in the battle, and then Galio shot him, and he died saying, I believe he was about to say Galio was his friend. Is that how you interpreted that scene as well? Yeah, that was very much a, a confrontation between friends. And what's also interesting about that is, you know, he goes down not against Mikazuki, who you assumed would be the one doing it, right? Because, you know, McGillis is the Shar, right, of this series. Right. But it ends up not being that way. It ends up being the Garma. <laughs> come right. back from the dead. Come back from the dead to get revenge. I completely agree with you saying McGillis is, you know, he's always got his his hand by his chin or his face. And, oh, I'm so overconfident with my plot. I, I almost feel like he was lucky up through season one. And then come season two, as soon as Rustal shows up, he's outmatched. There's no way he can defeat him. It's like the culmination of his plan was to just have a fleet-on-fleet battle with the fleet that was loyal to him from Gallahorn and Tekadin against, you know, the Aryan Rod fleet. Maybe they could have won, or at least it was an even fight. I'm not sure what their, their thoughts were. I assume they're just relying on their Gundams to uh, defeat Aryan Rod. As soon as Aryan Rod took out the Dane's Leafs, it was over. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. theoretically, so, if they didn't have the Dane's Leafs, then maybe they could have won. There was a won. chance, yeah. 
because McGillis did carve up a lot of like the grunt Gallarhorn suits at the end with no real problem with Gundam Bale, but then he ran into Gallio. Yeah, I guess if not for Gallio and the the Danes Leafs, then maybe they <laughs> would have had a chance. I'm not sure, but that's that's interesting though. You kind of fell under McGillis's spell for a bit, kind of like Orga. You thought like he had like <laughs> secret I did mobile armors underneath, or like oh by the way, I've been building you know a solar ray <laughs> on like the, one of the moons of Mars <laughs> or something, and you like are... we'll see it in the final battle. <laughs> You are 100% correct. I, I fell for his ruse. <laughs> Turns out it was just all an empty promise. Was there a side character in Tekadin, like called Brian? <laughs> like, he's like, come on, Brian, just be king of the moon. <laughs> oh, I totally fell you for gotta, it. You gotta give me your troops. My plan is foolproof. <laughs> How could he lose? He has yeah. Gundam Bail. <laughs> one Gundam will take out the entire fleet. So I guess one thing we should probably talk about is his backstory. Uh, which was revealed in this season. Similar to the same-sex relationships, I don't think we've seen quite a terrible backstory like this before in Gundam either. We've never seen anything like this. Yeah, so I'm going to give you my interpretation of his backstory because I think it was left intentionally vague but very clear at the same time. All right. So I interpreted that he was purchased by Lord Isnario. Right. And... It seems that Lord Isnario maybe had a affinity for young blonde children, yes. and he used them as sex slaves to some degree, or sex objects. True, yeah. Because there, there's that one scene where he's in bed with Lord Isnario, like they're sleeping, when I say sleeping together, I don't mean in the act, yeah. I just mean they're sleeping in the same bed, and like... Right. And McGillis is all beat up and like bloody, which is very strange, so not only was he being sexually abused but like physically abused as well i mean that's just it's pretty disturbing it was also shocking right to see in a gundam series yeah yeah totally not standard fare does that align with your understanding as well i mean they didn't come out and say that explicitly they showed it yeah that was completely my understanding it goes in line with the whole human debris thing right there's all these you know, young children that are just mistreated and abused and misused in industries, whether it's war or, you know, whatever else. We have to assume that there's children in mines at this point, too. So why not? Why wouldn't there be sex trafficking and this type of abuse also? And yeah, that's completely what I saw with the Lord scenario also. And then for whatever reason, or probably just to continue the abuse, he just adopted him. You know, the rest of the story unfolded from there as an adopted Seven Stars family member. He gets put into their whole educational system and the access to their whole Gallahorn network. So it was just normal for him to become an officer and rise the ranks. Yeah, it also led into his downfall when Rustall revealed the true nature of uh, his relationship with Lord Isnario, and that put a nail in the coffin of McGillis being shunned from Gallahorn at the end of the end of the show. So that's when you knew that no help from Gallahorn was coming, whether it was from the Mars fleet or from the other Seven Stars, despite having yeah. Gundam Bale. I don't think we ever see Lord Isnario suffer for it either, do we? He's just kind of ushered off, I think, at the end of season one, and we never see him again. I think he was shown very briefly in this season, just like talking to the authorities or or Gallarhorn authorities, yeah. And it it was around the same time when they said that Restall has revealed uh, your relationship. So not only Mm -hmm. is that creepy enough, but then we have McGillis's whole relationship with Almeria, Gallio's little sister. They're sort of in a like arranged marriage thing. And that whole oh, thing, I just God. thought was super creepy as well. 
Yeah, um, that was she was sitting on his lap yeah. and just all. And I just thought, like, as a you know, McGillis is, difference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, McGillis is clearly a victim of abuse, and it seemed like almost he was doing the same thing to her, but maybe not to the same degree on a relative scale what he experienced. But he's clearly yeah. manipulating this small girl who can't be more than what like ten at the most. It begs the question: Is this how everything's done in Gallahorn? I mean, they're all like arranged marriages at very disparate ages. You know, no wonder all these leaders are kind of uh, not the best people like Eoc or, oh God, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It was unexpected to see in Gundam. Very creepy when we realized what was happening. Because I think we first see McGillis at his youngest when he's at like the child brothel or whatever that is, right? That mm-hmm. The the shop mm-hmm. that his Nario picks him up at. It definitely explains why McGillis would want to uh, use any means necessary to change the system that's currently in power ultimately not get the result that he wanted mcgillis rest in peace but you kind of failed big time you blew it blew it like the gundam bales cockpit at the end of the battle (laughs) (laughs) speaking of gundam bale blowing up how about galio also known in this series as vidar well number one i was happy we got to see galio come back as a new character did you know that vidar was going to be galio did you suspect that it was man in the mask so, yes, I did think it was pretty obvious that Galio was Vidar. I don't think that disguise was fooling yeah. anyone. I mean, the only reason you would need a mask, or at least from an audience perspective, is if we already know that character, then it'll be a surprise. While I knew who he was, I did enjoy his back and forth, like philosophical uh, ramblings with Julieta. Um, and Galio was much more badass as Vidar than he was as Galio, at least in season one. His piloting improved. Certainly, even without the the Ein system. Yeah, I was gonna say he's got like the quasi half Alea Vinyana system. <laughs> yeah, so he's half man, half machine. He should be better. And let's talk about the lengths that he goes to to get better. He develops like an AI version of Ein based on Ein's brain data to help him fight. You know, allows him to sort of use Gundam Kamaris just like Mika did against the mobile armor with no data limit. Yeah. But he, he is essentially sharing that burden with the, the AI version of Ayn. You know, while it's still stressful on Galio, it, he doesn't have quite the permanent effects like Mika does with his arm not working and his eye bleeding and, you know, and then losing the ability to walk. So none of that happens to Galio. To work like an AI version of Ayn into the revenge plot against McGillis, I thought that was pretty fitting. Yeah, it was good to see Ayn come back in that hollow way. <laughs> <laughs> he reminded me a lot, at least just in appearance, of a uh, Carozo Rona from uh, Gundam F91 Iron Mask. I I totally agree. I had the same thought when I first saw it. He was a cool character. I'm glad he got his whole little revenge arc completed, and he lives. He made it through the end. He and did. He did live, although yeah. it didn't seem like he was in a wheelchair. So clearly, seriously yeah. wounded. Yeah, I guess the one thing I didn't quite understand about Galio was like. Even though McGillis betrayed him in season one, I did feel like I really wasn't sure why Galio was aligning himself with Rustall. Galio sort of believed in what McGillis was trying to do. I mean, I understand that he got betrayed, so that, that kind of makes sense why you would oppose McGillis. But I don't know that Rustall really it was preaching what Galio wanted. And now, granted, you know, I guess Rustall did eventually change Gallahorn into that democratic process. So what, what did you think about that? Or am I not making sense on that one? No, I think you make perfect sense. You know, he was such a supporter and close friend of um, of McGillis at the beginning of season one. And, you know, ultimately just gets betrayed um, before the season's even over. But I feel like that betrayal and his desire for revenge meant that he would do anything he had to 
to get back at McGillis. That's his only concern. He'll exile himself from, or at least lower himself in the eyes of everybody in Gallahorn by going through his, you know, quasi Alea Vignana system, by putting on the mask and doing things that they look down upon uh, just to get back at McGillis. He'll completely agree to that. He'll be reckless in battle and just go straight for McGillis. He'll side with Rustal Elion in order to get revenge. Revenge is his single-minded goal. You know, he really came to embody that, but uh, ultimately he did get revenge. Yeah. Maybe one of the rare instances of Gundam, I think, of someone getting revenge and, like, surviving also, you know, not dying in the act of revenge. You kind of see that a lot, I feel. In this case, you know, he not only got revenge, but he got to live and really see the world afterwards. I liked his arc. Good character. Yeah, I like Gallium. He was solid. Okay, how about the big man on campus, Rustal Elion? Rustal, man. This guy, I would argue, was like an anti-villain. He looks like a villain. He's got all this power, right? He's able to almost single-handedly plot the death of almost all the main characters. <laughs> but he ends up kind of being a good guy in the end, you know? Like, there's a case to be made that Rustal did the right thing. <laughs> Hear me out before you flood the comments. <laughs> all right. Do you really want someone like McGillis in charge? <laughs> McGillis was like backstabbing people before he even had actual power. When Rustal is in charge, he starts to transition to democracy. He didn't really backstab anybody. He went to war with Tekadin, sure, but they aren't blameless. Tekadin played their cards. They decided to put all their chips with McGillis, and the end result was not surprising considering who their friends were. So I'd say Rustal was a great villain. Uh, really interesting that he lived to the end and ended up becoming almost a good guy because of the, <laughs> the, the reforms he makes. He couldn't, I mean, Cudelia could have done it without him, right? He pretty much gave her the go-ahead to be autonomous and make her dream come true. You could even argue that if he wanted, he could have gone after the rest of Tekadin. But by that point, everything was over. The war was over. There was peace and there's really no need. So I'll give, I'll give Rustel more credit than a lot of people might. He was an anti-villain. I ultimately say that he was a, a good man to do the transition, probably a better man than McGillis, from a Gallahorn dictatorship to a, a more democratic um, Earthsphere. He's definitely the true mastermind of the series, right? He turns out to be sort of the man in charge the whole time. I don't know if I'll go so far as to say he was a good man. His actions resulted in accomplishing the goal that the protagonists were seeking. But it was scorched earth in in his wake. You know, he took out all the main characters on the way. And there's that one conversation that he has with Julieta where she's complaining about how all of the older people in the world are just sort of, uh, I think she calls them shady or something. And they're, they're just out for themselves and manipulating yeah. other people. And then he goes, you realize that I'm one of those shady people that you're talking about, right? And I thought that was the perfect <laughs> encapsulation of his character. And he's fully admitting it because all he does is manipulate people in different ways. I mean, he, he framed McGillis for using a dance leaf and then uses a ton of them in retaliation. He reveals McGillis's relationship with his Nario, just a perfect way to get everyone on your side. He clearly was holding that in his back pocket at all times. Another thing that McGillis overlooked, he didn't have a contingency plan for that. And then even at the end, let's, let's assume that maybe his battle with Tekken and McGillis doesn't go well. Who are the people that could potentially pose a threat to him? Well, he lets Gallio and McGillis fight it out, like to the death, without interfering. He, he essentially lets them get rid of each other. Yeah. 
So it's it's quite the master stroke. I mean, really at every step with this guy. Now, granted, half of his master strokes just involve him using the Dan's leaves. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> he he is the mastermind, but he's also just the guy that has the keys to like the Dan's leave closet, right, where they're yeah. all stored. So whenever there's a problem, he's like, oh, we'll just we'll just go use a few, and it'll be okay. <laughs> Because he uses them to win against McGillis, Tekadin, Nays, and then completely defenseless Tekadin again at the very end, you know, which wiped out basically the entire main cast. So quite the manipulator. I think my only knock on him is, again, he really wasn't in season one too much, so we don't have like a huge backstory on him. But yeah, he, he definitely had a, a, a powerful and, and overwhelming presence of just this guy is basically untouchable, except for that key moment when Shino almost shot his bridge and it should have happened. <laughs> the only time we see him lose is cool really yes yes other than that he's pretty smug or calm yeah i completely agree he really did manipulate everything to his advantage in the end it showed that he did the bad things for the right reason he made sure mcgills didn't come to power and ultimately when the dust settled he transitioned to a a much better uh, society for everybody involved without rustal we could have had a happy ending well a bittersweet ending the sweetness in the bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I don't see him doing it because a democratic Gallarhorn is a good idea. I see him doing it because that's the writing on the wall. And Absolutely. This, this coup yeah. exposed the corruption. So his only way to stay in power is to do this and get elected. Because he knows that if he manages the transition, then he gets elected. Which, that's what happened. And yeah, that's yeah. good enough for him. So, I mean, again master manipulation on his part in closing i'll say he's the ultimate pragmatist because like you said he'll use uh dane sleeves at the drop of a hat at the same time you know that really did reduce casualties in any war because it's a super weapon so it was very effective i think and uh, saved lives <laughs> yeah okay so how about julietta she was like his right hand girl yeah. i suppose i feel like they were trying to do an arc with her that showed her growth or maybe her uh, disillusionment with Gallahorn in a way. But ultimately, I feel like there wasn't enough time in the show for that. She was just sort of the female loyalist on their side that had a low opinion of like Eok and, you know, <laughs> was just sort of Rustal's uh, protege. Yeah, I agree. She was definitely underdeveloped. And I, I also agree. I'm not sure if they had a bigger plan for her or what happened there, but they used her as a way to give some exposition for why Rustal was doing what he was doing, especially in that shady person conversation. The one thing I'll say is there's a very weird moment at the very end where Akihiro and uh, Mika are the last two left on the battlefield from Tekadin. They've already been hit by the Dane's leaves. I think both Mika and Akihiro have a, a Dane's leaf like through their suit, basically. And she comes and she pierces the head of Barbados and she holds it up on her sword. And it's just so weird, like, to see her, of all people, take out the main character suit. Like, Julietta, really? Like, that really drove it home that your protagonist lost. And, and the enemy was literally holding up their head. I agree. But uh, I felt like there weren't that many people left who it could have been. <laughs> True. I mean, yeah. I, I suppose we could have seen Rustal climb into a suit and go fight. You know, his probably would have been like some giant Gala Zeong or something like that. <laughs> By that point, there weren't too many... Gallarhorn officer level type people on the battlefield and the fact that he had already been damaged so greatly I felt like it, it kind of made sense that you know she's just sort of picking apart the the corpse at this point and this is going to be a very bittersweet almost downer of a, of a final battle yeah I think she proclaims the devil is dead and as she holds it up it's really sad to see the, the Barbatos go out that way but 
Yeah. So it goes. But that is the price of peace yeah. for Galhorn. <laughs> <laughs> Complete annihilation of <laughs> the main characters. And the last person from Galhorn, the last character we'll talk about is Eok Kujan. <laughs> oh, this guy was such like a naive and idiotic little punk. I was so oh. <laughs> happy seeing him get crushed slowly. <laughs> yeah, I think we've already given our two cents on uh, on Eok at this point. But yeah, I agree. He was annoying. He was naive. And, you know, not only those, but he was like a pretty terrible pilot. He had terrible strategy. All he could really do was use like a sniper rifle, which, to be honest, when you're using like a computer lock-on system, is that really that impressive? But yeah, garbage human. He refuses to let Naze surrender, frames him for using a dance leaf, wipes him out. So I agree. It was great watching him get crushed with the Akihiro Crushers. Yeah, what we call it? Oh, the Akihiro Crunch. (laughs) (laughs) What was interesting about him, I guess, his only interesting quality was that he was very much the poster boy of what was wrong with Gallahorn, that just somebody with the last name could have this much power. He could pretty much order his troops into combat and just die for no reason. And he himself really didn't earn his position. And even other members of Gallahorn had a low opinion of him. But because of the way their system works and because he just comes from a family that has this much money and power, the corruption resulted in him just being able to pilot such powerful mobile suits and being able to lead his own forces. It was a a big waving flag for why Gallahorn needed to be reformed or replaced. Agree. Yeah, he was this yeah. season's carta issue. He, in a way, he was more Garma than anybody else in the show, than, than the person who should have been the Garma, Gallio. He was <laughs> spoiled brat in a mobile suit that probably shouldn't have been on the battlefield. Yeah, I totally undersold Gallio in, in season one, calling him Iron Garma. Yeah, we, you had to keep watching the, <laughs> the, the twist and the turns in Iron-Blooded Orphans <laughs> to figure out what was really going to happen. Yeah. All right, how about we move on to mobile suits? Before we get to the Gundams, are there any like grunt suits that you really enjoyed in this season, or do you feel that they were sort of just as forgettable as the first season? I'll say that Iron-Blooded Orphans, unfortunately, had more bland mobile suits designs than I thought yeah, I don't think the grunt suits, so to speak, are anywhere near the level of the Zaku's or, you know, suits we see in other timelines. Dare I say, even the Leo is more recognizable oh. than a lot of these suits. Uh, double O suits are way more recognizable, too. These ones were not not my favorite, really. I, I feel like they uh, could have taken a lot more time, uh, you know, letting them cook. Yeah, I agree. I will say the grunts in this season were much better than the grazes in the first season, but I still didn't really, like, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't describe one to you right now. Yeah. Um, the only one I did think that was pretty good was called the Landman Roadie. These were like the, the roundish ones. Aston used one of these in the beginning. That's what he died in. And then I think they, they held on to two roadies after that throughout the rest of the show. They had like personality because they were sort of big and bulky and round. A lot of the other grunts, I felt it was just a mix of random geometric shapes composing a vague like humanoid body. But this one, I felt maybe was a little more... Maybe Zeonic is a good way to describe it. It felt like something Zeon would, would put out. Um, so I liked the I liked the roadie. I, I liked that one. But yeah, in general, eh, still pretty meh on the grunts. As far as the Gundams, which one do you want to start with? Should we start with Barbados Lupus? Yeah. Barbados had two upgrades this season. First into the Lupus and then into the Lupus Rex. 
it starts out the series as the Barbatos lupus. And I actually liked this better than the original Barbatos. I really liked the red on the shoulders. Um, yeah, it's a bit beefier. <clears throat> yeah, I thought it just gave it a little more personality. Um, it still has that huge V fin that you you hate. Also, it has the stilettos. I don't. I, I hate. <laughs> yeah, it does have those stilettos. It's not quite as bad as the the other suits with the stilettos, but yeah, I, I will say that compared to season one, the Barbatos overall did grow on me a little bit more in season two, just because I think I'm sort of used to the brutality with which the Barbatos fights, and and yeah, I think it makes makes sense in this in this series, um, but still probably not my favorite Gundam. I agree. It really comes down to how different the headpiece is. But, you know, this whole series was different, so I just kind of rolled with it and try not to pay too much attention to what I didn't really like about the mobile suit. But it was just, you know, viewed as the the unique Gundam for unique series. And what did you think of the Lupus Rex? I didn't like that they took away the red shoulders. I, I thought I liked the red shoulders, and they gave them to us, and they took them away. So... <laughs> I wouldn't say it's that much of a change from the lupus. I agree. I figured maybe making the mobile suit look beefier as it got upgraded would have been a better choice. But instead, the shoulders got kind of just rounded, I guess. I'm not a fan of round shoulders on, on Gundams. I feel like they they kind of need more of a V-shape to really get that Gundam look. For the lupus Rex, I did like that they added the tail from the mobile armor. I thought that was a nice yeah. touch. <laughs> is that what made maybe the Gundam so effective against the mobile armors during the war that like they could add on pieces as they defeated mobile armors and then they just got stronger as they really battled more? So could, could be it raised some interesting questions. I did read that like Gundam frames were all very compatible, so they could borrow parts from each other. So oh, maybe the same. Universe? Okay. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's same is true for the mobile armors. I'm not sure. Maybe yeah. it makes sense. But yeah, I thought that was that was a neat. It was kind of like a trophy for Mika, and it made him super deadly. Like he really abused that tail the second half of the season. He just killed <laughs> everything, everyone with that thing. Okay, how about do we have anything else to add on Akihiro's boring suit, the Gundam Gujin Rebake Full City? The only thing to add is that it got to use its crunch in the most effective <laughs> way, taking out Eok. But other than that. Still not a fan of the colors. The colors are really maybe the worst choice for a supporting uh, mobile suit. Again, I was hoping for a new paint job. It really doesn't look like a Gundam visually, right? That's kind of par for the course, though, since everything's so different in this series. But face-wise, if you glanced at it, you could almost assume it was like a mass-produced Federation or Good Guy-type mobile suit, right? Agree, yeah. I think visually it may be called a Gundam, but it doesn't look like a Gundam. It looks like something that would have been designed in the Seed era, like when big backpacks were a thing. Do you remember yeah. how in Seed every suit, as the series went on, like the backpacks got bigger? I felt like yeah, jeez, yeah. <laughs> and like I feel this back is era. <laughs> yeah, the backpack era. Like I feel like this is from there, and just plus the bland paint scheme. I don't know, just still not a fan. But yeah, we we did like the uh, the crunchers. Yeah, I don't see this model selling very much. <laughs> I wouldn't get it. Yeah. I'll go a step further. There's not a lot of models from this series that I'd get. Okay, how about Gundam Vidar? I thought this one was pretty awesome out of all the Gundams. Definitely a more sinister-looking Gundam for obvious reasons. I probably would be interested in getting this if it was... At a discounted price, <laughs> it really reminds you of like a Titans mobile suit, doesn't it? 
just yeah, color scheme wise, just the villainousness to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought Gundam Vidar was maybe the best design of the series. And wow. I was kind of sad that he changed it back to Kamaris after he revealed himself to be Galio. But yeah, I agree. The blue-black, great color scheme. Not only are those colors great, but just the uh, ratios that they use creates a really neat silhouette. And yeah. it kind of reminded me, I definitely, now that you say Titans, I, I definitely see... I can see how you would think this is a Titan suit for sure. It reminds me of the Gundam Mark II, the Titans colors. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the Hyakushiki a little bit. Um, a bit, yeah. As well as the Delta Gundam from uh, Unicorn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Or like the Zeta Pluses, kind of. What, what, what's really interesting, too, is like the uh, the Vernier thrusters. We never see them like in on the knee. Yeah, yeah, and they're very upfront about it. It's a huge knee thruster. (laughs) Yeah, it's like I'm not sure how the engineering works, but you don't want to take a round in there, I assume. (laughs) That might be the end of your leg. Yeah, his he had those really cool disposable lances. I thought those were really neat. Like he would stab someone and then disengage. I thought Galio was the most badass when he was piloting Gundam Vidar. I really liked this one. Yeah, me too. Definitely a great design and. uh, Great performance on the show. What about how it turned into uh, Gundam Kimaris Vidar at the end when he revealed himself? What I didn't like about that one is it was kind of too nighty, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> a little on the nose. A very, very true Crossbone Vanguard, you know, a shout out to them, I guess, with the color scheme and the design. I also didn't like the legs. I wasn't a fan of the legs <laughs> for sure. It was just bizarre, I thought. Other than that, it, it's an okay suit. It's very villainous looking, so it it fit the character, but it wasn't a favorite design. I agree. I totally see the Crossbone Vanguard influence here. Even the head of Gundam Kamaris looks like his Vidar mask, and it looks like Corozo's mask to me. So that's why I feel like it it seems so Crossbone Vanguardy. Yeah, and I I think the color scheme and everything from the waist up looks good, but then yeah, those legs are just really weird it doesn't make sense (laughs) (laughs) if you gave it flat legs it would have given it so much more weight like can you imagine that with like gp2 legs yeah it would have it would have looked like a a beast maybe isaac and i just have a problem with the legs in this show but maybe we're being picky i don't know maybe people love these legs comment do you love the uh the stiletto high heel look i just it's strange yeah i'm gonna say this is just a trend with the Maybe in Japanese design for giant robots, like, you know, Flatfoot had its day, so maybe now they're doing stilettos. Maybe they think it looks more modern or something. I don't know. It doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) It looks unstable. Yeah. How about Gundam Floros, the one that uh, Shino piloted? This one, like, always reminded me of, like, uh, heavy arms, kind of. Mm -hmm. I I like the shoulder guns. Those were pretty awesome, I thought. But it didn't really... You know, again, scream Gundam to me because look at the face, Brian. <laughs> do you see a Gundam face there? Uh, no, no I, I do if you look really closely at oh, the details, but the way they don't they don't really ever show you too much of the face close up. I mean, maybe when we first meet it, but then it, that's when it's in its alternate color scheme, uh, which I would say it's actually before Shino repaints it. I think it looks more like a Gundam than after he repaints it, I agree, it doesn't look like a Gundam because it's sort of just overwhelmingly pink. 
Yeah. And maybe not that pink isn't a Gundam color. It's just that, I don't know, you don't usually see a Gundam with that much color. If that, no, I, if I'd that say this sense. continues. This series is sort of problem or a criticism I have with their Gundam design is that their Gundams don't look like Gundams. They just look like mobile suits. And that's not something I think is good for a series just because Gundams have to have their faces. They need their very distinct Gundam face. That's what makes them a Gundam compared to really anything else going on in their body. You can swap out a lot of different parts, but it has to have the Gundam face. And in this case, it doesn't have that. It's just called a Gundam. I still like the design, though. It's, you know, definitely has a very militant look to it, more than a lot of the sort of more sword-fighting type Gundams we see in the this, this series a lot. I would have loved them to slap on a, a more Gundam face to it, especially if they give it such a, a reddish, uh, crimson-type, uh, pink color scheme. As far as the actual performance of the suit, I, I thought it was a pretty neat suit for the show. I love the cannon mode. Like I said, I, to me, this suit was the climax of the series when you know when he tried to shoot Rustall. So, really enjoyed yeah. the the suit in the show. I think the design is one of the better designs in the show. It does have relatively flat feet, Isaac. Yeah, I'll give it that. It might have the flattest <laughs> that we've seen in a while. Sort of the, uh, I don't know, like T Rex feet or Velociraptor kind of feet. <laughs> okay, how about Gundam Bale? Oh, Bale. I'll give it this. It definitely looks very heroic, and it it must have been the poster child for like Gallahorn, just because of its color scheme is literally Gallahorn's colors. <laughs> the dual wielding swords were pretty cool, I thought. Again, my issue is with the face; it doesn't scream Gundam. I mean, so far Gundam Vidar and Barbatos screamed Gundam the most. This one just looks like I don't know, like it would be an experimental mobile suit or something. So I like Gundam Bale quite a bit. I think it, it definitely reminds me of High New, like the color scheme. Um, Wasn't High New purple? Yeah, this it, it's like a bluish purple mm, um, okay. accents. Yeah, so it's the same basic color scheme. I think they did that on purpose. Um, I mean, Barbados looks like the original Gundam color scheme, and yeah. Bale, the most widely revered Gundam, has the High New color scheme. So that makes sense to me. Uh, I think this one looks the most like a Gundam from the body and everything else with the exception of the head. Um, but then I agree, when you look at the head, it doesn't scream Gundam. Maybe they could have just colored the V-fin a little differently or somehow to emphasize the V-fin a little more. I, <laughs> I, I guess I was kind of disappointed by Bale. Like, I agree, the the two swords were really cool, especially because they were that really neat gold color. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting contrast. Like, right, if you just give him a purple sword or something that's the same color, it won't look quite as neat. But the gold was was pretty neat. Like, McGillis really built up Gundam Bale as, like, this ultimate weapon kind of thing. And then, I don't know, to me it was kind of a letdown as far as performance-wise. I mean, I know he carved up a bunch of the Gallarhorn suits, like the grunts, but he was doing that anyway in his Grimgird in, in the last season. You don't need the Gundam Bale to do that. So, t- I don't know, to me, performance-wise, Bale didn't really deliver. You know, both of the swords, I think, broke in the fight with Gallio. I don't think it really had many other weapons unless it had some onboard, like, you know, Vulcans or something. Again, maybe if Gallio wasn't there and he didn't have to fight the Gundam Kamaris, then, you know, McGillis could have wiped the floor with the rest of the fleet. But I don't know. It seemed like Kamaris was just as good as Gundam Bale because they pretty much just destroyed each other. But I would build a Gundam Bale model kit. I think I would definitely build Gundam Vidar first. Yeah. Would you buy Bale full price or no? Um... No. Well, I see. Here's the thing with buying an expensive 
Gundam Bale is I think the high new just looks like a better version of the Gundam Bale. Yeah. So I'd rather just buy a high new. I'll go a step further and say that Bale does not look like a Gundam that you reveal at the end of the series for the climax. Its face almost reminds me like, did you ever watch a Digimon? <laughs> I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember Moo, the bad guy? Ah, <laughs> uh, Moo. Okay, like Master Moo, the big, all right, anyways. But it looks like his face a lot, you know, just, just red eyes and like a faceless mask. So. Oh, wait, are you thinking of Monster Rancher? Oh, sorry, Monster Rancher, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I did watch Monster Rancher. I can't say I remember Master Moo too much. <laughs> yeah, I didn't enjoy it. The design could have done better, and I, I wasn't too much of a fan of it for all the hype that it got. Yeah, I did get a lot of hype. I feel like the body is very Gundam, but they lost me at the face. Again, we keep coming back to the face. <laughs> I need yeah, my so Gundam I, face. <laughs> Isaac wants a Gundam face and flat feet. That's, that's all he wants. That's all I'm asking for. Everything else, <laughs> you can go wild with the body. That's that's fair. Okay, how about... This isn't a mobile suit, but I think it definitely deserves mention, and that is the yeah. mobile armor, also known as Hashmall. So what did you think of this thing? I loved how different of a design it was. I mean, we've never seen a mobile armor, I think, on this scale, really. It kind of reminded me in a way of, like, if you remember Gundam Epion, how that kind of transforms. It sort of felt that, in a way, like how it has, like, its dragon form, right? Mm-hmm. This was very sort of dragon in its design. I really liked how wild they went with the scale of it. This thing was huge. It was pretty large, and it just had this reign of terror in the yeah. show for about, what, three, four episodes? Pretty much, yeah. What what I didn't like, though, was that like the, the plumas didn't really seem to match it. I thought maybe they should have had a similar color scheme, mm-hmm. but that's a very small complaint. Oftentimes, we see mobile armors in series, and they're really the same as the mobile armors in the UC. But in this case, it was um, you know mobile armors being used in a completely different way. And uh, I, I really like that about it. So I could see myself building one. Yeah, It would have to be pretty big, pretty expensive. So you know, <laughs> have, to see, have to see what that price was. Yeah. But yeah, the design is terrifying, right? Like as soon as you see it on screen, you know that the main characters are screwed. And... I kind of agree on the plumas. I guess maybe to that I would say that maybe the plumas are interchangeable between mobile armors, and that's why they don't necessarily match each one. It reminded me a little bit of Gundam Heaven's Sword uh, in the flight mode from G Gundam. I loved it from top to bottom. I thought it was great. And I will say that this thing took out McGillis in like one hit. McGillis kind of jobbed to this thing. He was like, oh, and he kind of got freaked out and took one hit, and his upgraded Grimgird kind of just fell to pieces. So... I was a little disappointed by McGillis' showing against this thing. In his defense, nobody saw this thing coming. <laughs> <laughs> True. So I guess one criticism I would have is that uh, this thing was so cool in the show, and we only got to see one. I was wanting more mobile armors by the end of the show. Like, after we saw the one, I thought for sure we'd at least see another one by the end of the show, if not more. Did you feel the same way or no? Um, no, I felt like this was very much a sub-boss kind of incident where they need to show us this. It sheds some light on the Calamity War, but you know the plot would definitely go back to Gallahorn and dealing with them, and introducing mobile armors wouldn't have been that conducive to uh, to keeping the plot going along. So I, I didn't expect it to be more than anything, but a, you know, a showing for the Gundam to defeat it ultimately. Okay, and the last weapon we'll mention is the Dane's Leaves. They're not a suit, but they're certainly a mobile weapon and maybe one of the most effective weapons we've seen in a long time in Gundam. I mean, how would you describe these, Isaac? They're basically just a rail gun 
right? They raised some questions, though. They're a rail gun, but they're only made in a certain size. Like, we didn't see them mounted on ships, even though they there's no reason they couldn't, right? Correct. So I yeah. guess whatever rules they have, they don't mount them on ships like the Aryan Rod fleet. Yeah, I, I like that they they have a weapon that's essentially its speed and its accuracy is its power. Like, there's no way to dodge, really. Once they're used, it just destroys anything below them, and there's really no way to dodge and no shield that can stop it. So I thought it was really interesting that the big reveal weapon, well, this really fits Iron-Blooded Orphans, the big reveal super weapon at the end is something on a much smaller scale than the super weapon that would be like, you know, a solar system, a solar ray, or the Genesis, some type of giant laser. So I like that about it, how it was a very powerful weapon, but on such a small scale that the, the big impact was it annihilating a fleet. Yeah, I, I loved basically every time they were on screen, even though pretty much some main character was going to die every time one was fired. Uh, they were pretty darn cool, though, I think. Exactly. And, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see them in the new um, Gundam Build Fighters as like something that is just equipped on uh, certain cheap players, maybe, the one to cheat or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it was like an add-on that you could buy. Like it was like pay to win, you know, you get like a, a Dane's Leave. Yeah. Mr. Raw, what's wrong? Oh, <laughs> he, he just pulled out a Dane's leaf. <laughs> any other like random thoughts about the series? Yeah, I would say anybody who's listened this far that hasn't seen the series, please watch it. Watch it from the beginning, season one to season two. It's really worth it. I really enjoyed the series, and it's not perfect, but um, it was so unique in terms of comparing it to other Gundam series that you'd really enjoy it, I think. it's It's a fun ride. Totally agree. Totally recommended. I think this is probably definitely in my top three alternate timelines. I can see uh, myself for watching. Yeah. I just want to call out for the listeners who maybe really like this show and want more Iron-Blooded Orphans. There are two other Iron-Blooded Orphans um, spinoffs that you can consume. There is a side story manga called Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans Gecko. It was started being published in 2016. There's, I think, four volumes or so. Um, it does look like it's complete. I don't know if it's translated, so it might be pretty difficult to get your hands on it. But there are a number of Gundams in that series that are original, so they were not in the TV show. So there's Gundam Astaroth, Gundam of Wall, Gremory, Dantelion, Seer. So if you're looking for more Iron-Blooded Orphans Gundams, say you really like the designs, definitely seems like the side story called Gecko is something you can check out. And the second spinoff is a mobile phone game called uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans Erder Hunt. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it was released as part of the 40th anniversary of the Gundam franchise, and it takes place between the two seasons of, uh, of Iron-Blooded Orphans. So yeah, unlike you know UC where there's a million side stories, there's only two for Iron-Blooded Orphans, so a little more consumable, a little more manageable. Well, Isaac, how many Haros would you give season two, and how many Haros would you give the series overall? I would give... Iron-Blooded Orphans, season two, eight and a half Haros out of ten. And the whole series, I'll give nine. You know what? I enjoyed it that much. It was such a pleasant surprise. How about you? What do you give the season and the series? I will give season two and the series overall eight and a half Haros. If I didn't feel the ending was too bittersweet, I definitely would have rated this a nine or nine and a half. It was such a great series. The ending was a bit too hollow for me, but I respect anyone who really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I liked how different it was than what we usually see in Gundam series where, you know, there's peace and the bad guys lose and, you know, the heroes 
you know, lay down the Gundam and they decide to just move on with their lives. This was the complete opposite. (laughs) (laughs) And I think because the series is so good, that's why the ending had such an effect on us, right? Like there was such good character development in this show that when they all die pretty much at the end, it, you know, you're really bummed out. And that was, that was the whole point. So those writers did a good job. All in all though, definitely recommend. It's on my recommend list. Go watch it. It's on Netflix, Hulu, Crunchyroll, Funimation, and Blu-ray, so you have no excuse. Well, Brian, that was a great recap. I'm really glad we got to both enjoy the season. So I hope you enjoyed our review of Season 2 of Iron-Blooded Orphans. Let us know what you thought about the series in the comment box. Please like, comment, and subscribe. And we'll catch you next week for another episode of Colony Drop. Stay safe out there, all you mobile suit pilots. (laughs) Watch out for the Dan's Leaf Bombardment. Yeah. You never know. Freaking shot at. Put human debris in front of you. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) 